Hello and welcome to another episode of Life in the Dark, a podcast dedicated to the golden age of radio and Hollywood's classic era. This podcast is part of the Nomad in the Middle network. More information can be found at nomadinthemiddle.com. Radio's own show, Behind the Mic. Radio, with a switch of a dial, radio brings you tragedy, comedy, entertainment, information, education, a whole world at your command. But there are stories behind radio, stories behind your favorite program and favorite personalities and radio people you never hear of. Stories as amusing, dramatic, and as interesting as any make-believe stories you hear on the air. And that's what we give you, the human interest, the glamour, the tragedy, the comedy, and information that are behind the mic. Now, presenting the man who will carry on in the absence of Graham McNamee, one of radio's foremost announcers, the popular Ben Glower. Thank you, Gilbert Martin, and good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Today, Behind the Mic brings you the performer with the hardest job in radio, Phil Cook, the sound effect of the week, an actual rehearsal of a radio strip starring stage and scene stars Ralph Forbes and Gil Esmond. A salute to Roxy's gang with three members of the original gang. A well-known radio editor to answer letters from listeners. And finally, an unusual story told by Allie Lomile. Well, our first guest is a man whom I honestly believe is the hardest job of any performer in radio. For 17 years, he's been a favorite with radio listeners. And here he is, the man of a million voices, Phil Cook. <laughs> well, Phil, just to show our listeners that I meant what I said about your having the hardest job of any performer in radio, I want to ask you this. What time did your program, that Phil Cook's Almanac, go on the air yesterday? Well, I do two editions of the Almanac, Ben. Yeah. On the air first from 7 to 7.45 in the morning, and then for the second time with different material from 8.30 to 8.45 in the morning. And how often do you do this program, Phil? Only six days a week. Uh-uh. Two programs totaling an hour every day, six days a week. Uh, who writes your material, Phil? Yes, Phil. Or by yourself? Pretty modestly, yes. <laughs> I plead guilty, and I do mean guilty. <laughs> no, no, it's a swell show. Ladies and gentlemen, imagine Phil does a comedy program. Now your average comedian has a staff of from two to twelve writers who write a half hour or an hour comedy program that goes on the air once a week. Now here's a man who writes an hour program a day for six days a week, and he does it all by himself. Uh, Phil, how many characters do you use in this comedy program? Well, it varies, Ben. Sometimes I have as many as 16 in the show. Uh, and who acts these characters? Oh, he does that. Everyone, <laughs> can you imagine? And Phil, Phil talking. <laughs> Phil, if you're on the air at 7 in the morning, what time do you get up? Oh, that old maniac alarm clock ringing at 5 o'clock. <laughs> oh, dear, dear. <laughs> yes, uh, I have to get up in time to look the script over before we get to the station, Ben. <laughs> Some job. Well, Phil, I wonder if you could give us an example of the type of sketch you do on your Phil Cook Almanac program. Yes, I'd be glad to, Ben. Right. Of course, obviously, with the name it has, my program is based on the idea of being an almanac. Most of the sketches refer to the anniversary of some event that happened on the day of the broadcast. 
I generally have about 18 different sketches every day. And here's one little outburst that I had on the show while the time is talking. You say your listener asks you if bringing in the Yule log originated with the pilgrims? Well, I can tell you it didn't. No, sir. Bringing in the Yule log started way back in the medieval times in England. Yule being a dramatic word for Christmas. Lots of people went back to the old-fashioned Christmas spirit this year. I know uh, Mr. Jones did. I can see some neighbors now standing in the snow, admiring his new home. Say, look at Jones' house, would you? Ain't it pretty? Yeah, he certainly has gone into the old-fashioned spirit. Look at those holly wreaths in every window. And look how he's got the fir trees out in the front yard, all lit up with bulbs. Sure is pretty. He's even got mistletoe over the door. Certainly does this Christmas spirit thing up brown, don't he, Joe? Yeah, it does. Certainly hasn't missed any of the old-fashioned touches. Look there, would you look? Look. Where? Right there, see? Coming up through the snow. Why, they're even dragging in a Yule log. That ain't no Yule log. That's Jones. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Phil Cook. Thanks for showing us how versatile you are and for giving us a chance to get some interesting behind-the-mic information about the hardest working performer in radio. Sound effect of the week. Each week, Behind the Mic presents some unusual sound effect which was used on a program of the past seven days and tells exactly how it was done. On the daytime serial program, The O'Neills, this past week, a record played on a turntable was used to produce a certain sound effect. Now, what makes this sound effect interesting is this. When the record is played at its normal speed, it consists of a man talking Spanish. But when the same record is played at a faster speed, it produces the sound that was used on the O'Neills, the voice of Donald Duck. Here's the same record at high speed. (laughs) (laughs) Muchas gracias, señor Donald Duck. Another behind-the-mic glimpse of something that people who are not in radio seldom ever see or hear. The rehearsal of a dramatic script. Tomorrow, the Huitina Playhouse, a program which dramatizes famous books in episodic form, will begin A.J. Cronin's The Citadel, as adapted by Dave Victor and Herbert Little. Starring in The Citadel will be motion picture and stage stars Ralph Forbes as Dr. Andrew Manson and Jill Esmond as Christine, his sweetheart and later his wife. Now may I introduce the man who will direct The Citadel one of radio's best and therefore busiest directors, Carlo D'Angelo, who will tell you something about this rehearsal. Here's Carlo D'Angelo. <laughs> Glad to see you again, Carlo. Glad to see you, Ben. Uh, Carlo, what scene are you going to rehearse? Well, Ben, a week from this Monday, January 6th, is the sixth episode of The Citadel. Uh, we're doing an episode that takes place shortly after Dr. Manson's marriage to Christine, you see. Uh, we'll rehearse a scene that occurs the very day that they've moved into their new house. All right, uh, Miss Esmond and uh, Mr. Ralph Ford. 
And, uh, Jill, dear, uh, excuse me, I'll go into the control room, you see, and hear how the scene sounds, you know, over the microphone. All right. Okay, Pappy. Uh, Carl D'Angelo has left our studio stage and is going around the little corridor into the glass-enclosed control room where he sits next to the studio engineer, looks out, watches the performers, Miss Esmond and Mr. Forbes, and gives them their direction over the studio talkback mic. Go ahead, Carl. Thank you, Ben. All right, folks. Go ahead. Take the scene. Oh, Chris, I feel rotten about this. Me without a farthing... Using your furniture? Uh, Ralph. Yeah. Couldn't you feel a little rottener than that, please, you <laughs> Oh, yes, yes, very easily, Pappy. Um, oh, Chris, I feel rotten about this. That's good and rotten. <laughs> Me without a farthing, using your furniture, sponging on you and, uh, and dragging you off here in such a rush, I... Uh... I've loved every minute of it. That's it. You're so, so good about uh, it. Jill, dear... Couldn't you love it just a little more, please? I'll try. I've loved every minute of it. That's it. You're so so good about it. And I'm a selfish lout. Look, Uh, you're not, uh, Ralph, you're not enough of a lout. Could you, you know, a little more, please? Bigger lout? That's right. Uh, um, You're so good about it. And I'm a selfish lout. That's lousy enough. enough. Uh, I should have come ahead first and got the place decently ready for you. Andrew Manson, if you dared to leave me behind. Uh, Well, go ahead, Ralph. What are you waiting for? Huh? Oh. Oh, I'm sorry. I've lost the place. Uh, Andrew Manson. Uh, wait a minute. Ra- I'll tell you what you do, dear. Make that a broken speech, you see. Oh, yes. Andrew Manson, if you dare leave me behind, I... Uh... Right. And then break it. Yes. Andrew Manson, if you dare to leave me behind, I... Uh... Come on, Ralph. Oh, oh, I see, I see. Uh, I know how romantic a girl feels about things, and, and uh, well, we haven't... Uh, I mean, uh, we were just married this morning, and uh, this is supposed to be our honeymoon, and... Uh... Darling, you're blushing. What? Oh. Oh, oh, am I? Oh, oh Chris, I... I want to do so much for you. To be... To be good enough for you. Now, sweet, you just sit down somewhere. If you can find a chair, I think I shall make you an omelet. Now, wait a minute. Who's, who's on sound? Me. Who, Ted? Yeah. Uh, Ted, uh, you know, uh, change the sex on that sound with your female, you know. Okay. I'm glad Oh, I... that's sweet, Ted. Thank you. <laughs> I'm glad I thought to pick up eggs. I'm sure you're famished. You know, Andrew, I'm really a very good cook. This gas makes such a beautiful flame. Oh, Chris, I still can't believe we're really married. Oh, you'll get used to having me around. Yeah, wait a minute. Excuse me. What's that? Right here. Oh, God. no, no, it's more realistic. More yeah. realistic? How's this? That's better, that's fine. Go right ahead, go right ahead. Oh, you'll get used to having me around, all right. Throw a little butter in the pan. Huh? Oh, sure. Do you eat very much, Dr. Manson? Yeah, that's fine, all right. Tell you what you do now. Go, go right at the beginning of the scene, you see, and play it right to the end without stop. And watch your butter 
You mean really as though people were listening? That's right, Ralphito, dear. Oh, Chris, I feel rotten about this. Me without a farthing, using your furniture, sponging on you, and, and dragging you off here in such a rush. I've I... loved every minute of it. That's it. You're so, so good about it. And I'm a selfish lout. I should have come ahead first and got the place decently ready for Andrew you. Andrew Manson, if you dared to leave me behind... Oh, I know, I... I know how romantic a girl feels about things. And, well, we... We haven't... I, I mean, we were just married this morning, and, and this is supposed to be our honeymoon, and... and... Darling, you're blushing. What? Oh. Oh, Chris. I, I want to be so much for you. To be... To be good enough for you. Now, sweet, you sit down somewhere. Uh, if you can find a chair. I think I shall make you an omelette. I'm glad I thought to pick up eggs. I'm sure you're famished. You know, Andrew, I'm really a very good cook. This guest makes it a beautiful flame. Oh, Chris, I still can't believe we're really married. Oh, you'll get used to having me around, all right. Throw a little butter in the pan. Huh? Oh, oh, sure. You eat very much, Dr. Manson. You know, you really must make a list of your habits so that I'll just know how to please you. Well, one incurable habit I know I shall have. To kiss you when you least expect to be kissed. Now, for instance, while you're making an omelette. Mm. That ought to be fairly easy to cope with. Now, if you'll just be sure to kiss me when I most expect it, everything will be all right. Oh, Chris. <laughs> Darling. That's fine. As a matter of fact, it's not. Thank you. Yes, sounds that way to me, too. And thank you, Ralph Forbes, Jill Esmond, and director Carlo D'Angelo for a most interesting behind-the-mic scene. <laughs> Oddities in Radio. Presenting true little behind-the-mic stories that help make radio sometimes amusing, sometimes exasperating, but always interesting to the people in it. This week's oddity. To show you how resourceful announcers sometimes have to be, we give you the following true example. An announcer on station WBZ in Boston was supposed to give a time signal. Now, he started this time signal when suddenly he couldn't remember which of two well-known watches was sponsoring the signal. Now, but that didn't stop him. No siree. Here's the way he did it. It is now four o'clock, courtesy of, uh, uh, courtesy of, uh, folks, this one's on the house. <laughs> Behind the mic salutes a program you love. We in radio believe that our profession has a tradition of which it can well be proud. A tradition of good programs that linger fondly in the memory. And so each week we bring you a star or a part of the feature you used to hear. A program you love. This afternoon we salute one of radio's best-loved pioneer programs, Roxy's Gang. Conducted by one of the world's greatest showmen, the late and beloved Roxy. This program was heard each Sunday and ran from 1922 to 1931. This afternoon... We recreate part of this program with several of the original members of Roxy's gang performing and Roxy himself impersonated by Ward Wilson, 
who, when he was an engineer at NBC, worked with the great showman himself. Roxy's gang. We assume that the children have been put to bed, the supper dish is cleared away, and you are all comfortably seated for your evening's radio entertainment. We are sure that Roxy and his artists have an interesting program, and that they're just as pleased to go on the air as you may be to hear what they have for tonight's offering. And now, here is Roxy himself. Hello, everybody. It's a beautiful evening, and the gang is all ready to entertain you. Here's our baritone, Douglas Stanberry, at the microphone. How are you feeling tonight, Doug? I'm feeling just great. In other words, Doug, you feel like you could lick the world. What song are you going to sing for us? Invictus. Invictus. Invictus is Latin for unconquerable, isn't it? Yes. Well, then, the song you're going to sing is very appropriate to the way you feel. Invictus, sung by Douglas Stanford. I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fair clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud under the bludgeonings of chance. My head is bloody but unbound. Place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years and shall find me really beautiful, Doug. You're going to sing for us later, aren't you? Yes, Roxy. Fine. Now, don't leave now. I want you to be here for that next number. Now, I see our star, two piano team of Bert Schefter and Vladimir Brenner are seated at the twin pianos, ready to play for all they're worth. And their selection, Malaganya by Laquona.
And now, now where's Gamby? Come here, Gamby. I want you to say a few words to Andy. Yes, that was a grand program with Gamby, Gladys Rice, Waldo Mayo, Wee Willie Rabine, our guest this afternoon, Douglas Stanbury, Bert Schefter, Vladimir Brenner, and those other stellar entertainers who helped to brighten up your Sunday evening. But I think the sweetest memory of the great showman was the way he signed off each and every one of his programs. And at the finish of the broadcast, Roxy would say, Good night, pleasant dreams, and God bless you. Letters from listeners. Each week, we invite the listeners of Behind the Mic to write us questions about radio. And those we consider to be of most general interest, we have answered on the air by the radio editor of some outstanding newspaper or magazine. This afternoon's questions will be answered by Albert E. Son, radio editor of the Newark Sunday Call. Mr. Son. Uh, Ralph Spencer of Tulsa, Oklahoma, writes in to ask, I've been listening with interest to the sound effect portion of your program. Will you please tell me how I can become a sound effect man? I've but recently graduated from college. Become a sound man, ingenuity and inventiveness are important. And a mechanical or an electrical engineering degree won't hurt. Since a sound man has to invent a great many of his own effects, technical knowledge is very helpful. First, get a job in some local station. Any job. It may be one in charge of the sound effect record files. Anything that will give you a chance to be around the sound effects Observe how they work. Work yourself into a sound man's job, and finally, you will be ready to tackle a job for the large station. Ruth Carroll of Shreveport, Louisiana, writes, I've done a small amount of acting in amateur shows, and I'm thinking of coming to New York and trying to become a radio actress. Can you give me any advice on how to do this? Well, may I offer Miss Carroll this advice? Don't come to New York looking for an acting job in radio without having had experience. I suggest that you first try to gain experience by acting on your local station. You'll pick up many microphone tricks this way that are necessary for an actor's success. Radio in New York is crowded with experienced performers trying to make a living. Unless you have some radio background, your chance to connect is very small. Thank you, Albert Esau. Ladies and gentlemen, our next guest is the radio commentator and feature writer who is the confidant of thousands of men and women. Her radio feature, The Alley Low Miles Club, and continued success with her popular program, Husbands and Wives, has brought her a wealth of confessions about love and marriage. Here she is to tell you one of her unusual, true, behind-the-mic stories. I'm happy to present Alley Low Miles. (laughs) Mrs. Miles, what was that story? Well, Ben, I think I should first explain for those who didn't hear it that Husbands and Wives was a program in which various husbands and wives would get up before the microphone and tell about their marital problems. We'd then invite other husbands and wives to give their solutions. Well, one evening, about an hour before the broadcast, a wife who was to be a speaker, let's call her Mrs. Jenkins, came up to me and said, Mrs. Miles, just before I left the house, my husband told me that if I spoke about him on the radio tonight, he'd lock the door and never let me in the house again. And he also said he'd be waiting on the porch and might even kill me as I came up the front steps. Oh, Mrs. Jenkins, then I don't want you to go on the program if it's going to cause you any trouble. We want to straighten out marital difficulties, not increase them. But I want to go on. I'll show him he can't dominate me. 
Oh, but you want to be happy with your husband. It would be better not to anger him anymore. Well, I won't let him bully me. Mrs. Miles, I'm going on. Well, if you feel that way about it, let's talk over what you're going to say, and perhaps you'll admit that you don't blame him for everything. But it's all his fault. Oh, it is, huh? Well, if it does, you know, it takes two to make an argument, and if you'll admit that much on the air and take a little of the blame... It may smooth life out for both of you. Now, let's change your story with that idea in mind. I think we can do something. Well, we talked it over. And Mrs. Jenkins appeared to take part of the blame for the marital disagreements when she went on the air. But being the determined, abused person she was, she began her broadcast. I never saw such a finicky man in all my life. Casey, take his eggs. He wants them boiled exactly three and a half minutes, and if they're boiled three and a quarter minutes, he won't eat them. He thinks he can tell the difference by tapping on the unbroken egg with a spoon and listening to the sound. Well, once I timed the eggs to exactly three and a half minutes, and after he sounded them, he said they weren't right. Well, he never thinks I do anything right. Of course, maybe it's a little my fault. Maybe if I were just a little more... Well, after the broadcast, Mrs. Jenkins came up to me a changed person. Not at all a confident, belligerent wife who'd been on the air. Mrs. Miles, my husband said he'd be waiting on the front porch, and I'm afraid. Mrs. Miles, I don't know what that man will do after what I said. Now, wait a minute, Mrs. Jenkins. I have an idea. Oh, uh, Mr. Richards? Uh, yes, Mrs. Miles? Mr. Richards, Mrs. Jenkins is afraid of what her husband will do to her after hearing her talk about him on the program tonight. He threatened that if she went on the air, he might kill her. Kill her? Yes. I wonder if you'll escort Mrs. Jenkins home and wait outside to see that she gets safely in. Why, Mrs. Miles, I'd be glad to. Oh, fine. Nothing's going to happen to this little woman while I'm around. Come on, Mrs. Jenkins, wait till I get my overcoat. Well, Mr. Richards was one of the husbands who had appeared on the same show. He was a big, strong man. But later that evening, he phoned me at my home and said he'd waited outside the house and had seen Mrs. Jenkins go up on the porch. The door was unlocked. She'd waved to him that everything was all right, and then he left. But I was worried because he'd not waited longer. Perhaps the angry husband had been waiting for Mrs. Jenkins inside the house. I'd asked Mrs. Jenkins to phone me, too, because I wanted to know that everything was all right. And about half an hour later, the phone rang. Uh, hello? Hello? Is that you, Mrs. Miles? Yes, Mrs. Jenkins. Yes. Oh, Mrs. Miles. Mrs. Miles. Oh, are you badly hurt? Mrs. Miles, it's terrible. What happened? Tell me. Oh, Thank you, Allie Lobile. Agnes Moorhead is Mrs. Jenkins. Thank you, indeed. Ladies and gentlemen, if you enjoyed hearing the various artists on Behind the Mic, why not drop them a line and let them know about it? They'll be glad to hear from you. And be sure and listen next week when, with Graham McNamee's return, Behind the Mic will bring you, as a program we salute, Sigmund Space, the Tune Detective a demonstration of the important part a studio engineer plays in the programs you, uh, you hear. And in addition, there'll be more of the glamour, the human interest, the comedy, and the drama that are found behind the mic. This is Ben Grau, who enjoyed being with you in Graham's absence, wishing everybody a happy new year and saying good afternoon. Behind the Mic was written by Mort Lewis, original music composed and conducted by Ernie Watson. This is the National Broadcasting Company. And now, gangbusters!
Gangbusters, presented in cooperation with police and federal law enforcement departments throughout the United States. The only national program that brings you authentic police case histories. Tonight, Gangbusters celebrates its 14th anniversary. Since its beginning in 1936, Gangbusters has presented over 600 actual police case histories and aided in the apprehension of over 350 wanted criminals. Tonight, Gangbusters has asked the Honorable John C. Hilly, Assistant United States Attorney for the Southern District of New York, to narrate tonight's case of the Golden Touch. Mr. Hilly. Thank you, Roger Foster, and good evening, Gangbusters listeners. Tonight's case began rather inauspiciously late one night, not too many months ago in a diner on the lower west side of New York. This diner was frequented mainly by dock wallopers from nearby piers and drivers and loaders from the nearby truck terminals. A wiry young man in work clothes was sitting at the counter over a cup of coffee when a heavy-set man walked toward the empty stool beside him. Hello, Ralph. How's the coffee? Oh, Victor. Hi. A uh, cup of coffee. Black. Oh, where have you been keeping yourself, Ralph? Been working. Good. Glad to hear it. Where? At Woods Trucking. Yeah, doing what? I'm checking loads. Uh, I gotta get back, Victor. See you around. Oh, wait a minute. I'll walk part of the way with you. What about your coffee? Uh, the coffee here stinks. Hey, you are, bud. Forget the coffee, will you? You're looking great, Ralph. Yeah. Was feeling great, too. After you, Ralph? Mm. Thanks. I, uh, I go this way. I've been looking for you, Ralph. That's so? Yeah. Want you to get me a load. Well, don't look my way, Victor. I had enough. But I got everything set. I got a big buyer uptown. Lots of dough. Look, I like dough as well as the next guy, but I don't want to take another fall, so that's that. No, you won't take any fall. Nobody will take a fall. You get me a load of scotch whiskey, we'll make a nice piece of change. A buyer will pay $25 a case for all we can get. Look, I don't want to get jammed up again, Victor. It ain't worth it. I like breathing free air. Well, think it over, kid, and let me know. Can I uh, meet you someplace after work? No, not tonight. I got to meet Dee for a drink after. Oh, date with a wife, huh? Yeah. Okay, Ralph, I'll be in touch with you. You think it over, huh? But I don't... Just think it over. You'll get two and a half G's for doing nothing. So long, Ralph. Yeah. So long. Beanie, baby, I didn't come here to talk foolish. I came to enjoy a drink. Look, Ralph, it stands to reason. You gotta get that load for Victor. What have you got to lose? What have I got to lose? I'll tell you what I got to lose. Got another several years off my life to lose. Has Victor taken a fall yet? Has he? I ain't worried about Victor. I'm worried about myself. As if the eyes ain't dumb, you know. Fucked all the liquor out of my terminal gets hijacked. I'll be the first guy they talk to. So what good will talking get him? Oh. How do you ever expect to get anywhere in this world if you don't take a chance? Say, listen, baby, whose side are you on anyway? Who? Has Victor been talking to you? To me? Why should Victor be talking to me? How did he find out where I was? How did he find out I was working to get in a truck terminal? Well, don't ask me. There are millions of ways of finding out those things if you want to find them out. Yeah. 
Ralph, I'm telling you, you're passing up the opportunity of a lifetime. It's like money in the bank. Victor already has a buyer lined up. Oh, if I had any sense, I'd go right to the FBI with this thing. Right to the FBI and tell them all about it. Now, wouldn't that be just love? What I... Guess I got no sense. Oh, Ralph, I knew you'd do it. I just knew it. Special Agent Service, are you? Oh, Mr. Service, I, uh... I don't know if you remember me. You had me up on hijacking a couple of years ago. What's your name? I'll remember you. Well, that, that can keep for a minute, Mr. Service. But would you FBI's like to break up a hijacking before it starts? I think we would. What's it all about? Well, a, a certain party has come to me and asked me to line up a load of liquor. Now, I don't want to get jammed up again, Mr. Service. I'm clean. I want to stay clean. Why don't you come here and tell me about it? Oh, well, look, Mr. Service. Uh, uh, how about City Hall Park, huh? City Hall Park in, in a half an hour. Okay. But who is this? Well, it's, uh... It's Ralph Sarek, Mr. Service. Remember? Yes. Okay, Ralph. City Hall Park in half an hour. Hello, Ralph. Oh. Well, Mr. Service. Well, let's sit down on the bench, then. No, no. I think we'd better walk. Sure. Maybe this wasn't such a good place to meet after all in broad daylight like this. Huh? You don't think anybody's behind you? I don't know about that. I wouldn't put it past Victor. Victor Rossi? Yeah, Victor Rossi. He's the one. Hold it there. Hey, hey, taxi. Where are we going? We can talk riding around. Get in, Ralph. Okay. Yeah. Head up down, driver. So it's Victor who wants you to get him alone. Yeah, that's right, Mr. Service. Ain't that good information for you? I always knew you wanted to make Victor. This isn't a make, Ralph. Well, isn't it? I, I Tell thought... me something. Uh, why didn't you get him alone? Now, look, Mr. Service, I don't want to do any more time. I had enough in there. Why didn't you just tell Victor no and forget about it? Well, you know how it is, Mr. Service. By not getting him alone, I passed up a two-and-a-half cheap touch at least. I, I figured it... Well... You know, the government's so anxious to get a make on Victor to collar him. Uh, you know what I mean? Yeah, Ralph, I know what you mean. But the government doesn't pay out money to anybody unless they work for it. Work? Work how, Mr. Service? You find that load for Victor. We'll let him hijack it. We will? We will. That's the only way we'll get a make on him. Well, but, Mr. Service... It's settled, isn't it? Yeah, and keep your ears open. Keep my ears open. I want all the information you can bring me about the buyer. My boss wants the buyer as bad as he wants Victor. Worse than he wants Victor. Yeah, the buyer. Well, Ralph, how do you think you'll like working for the government? Uh, it's going to be hard to get used to, Mr. Service. Awful hard. Yes? Me, Victor. Ralph. Okay, just a second. Well, Victor. Well? Got your load, Victor. Yeah. What? 1,150 cases of scotch. How's that? Yeah, that sounds all right. When's it coming in? Uh, the ship docks tomorrow over in Jersey, Hoboken. How's it come over? Through the Holland Tunnel? No, on the Cortland Street Ferry. When something lands in Hoboken, we always bring it over on the ferry. Well, it ain't much of a ride from the ferry up to your terminal. 
Yeah, we'll have to grab the truck on the ferry. Hey, can you do that? Well, sure, why not? How many men on the truck? Two, uh, driving to help us. Yeah, there won't be any trouble. You're sure it's 1,100 in some cases? Listen, I've seen a manifest. Okay, Ralph, it's a deal. 10%? 10%. Yeah. Uh, is this uh, one buyer going to take it all at 25 bucks a case? Every drop. Can he handle it all? Yeah, he's a big operator uptown. He's got a string of small clubs. He can handle it all right. Yeah. Uh, do I know him? What are you so interested in a buyer for? Me? I, I, I don't know. I just want to be sure. Sure of what? Well, listen, I'm a part of this deal. I'm entitled to have the facts, don't you think? I'm telling you the facts. Okay, okay. So don't worry about it. Okay, I, I was just wondering. Well, stop wondering. Everything's taken care of. Now, how about a drink on it? Uh, no, no, thanks. I, I gotta run along. I gotta meet Dee Dee. Oh? Well, have a good time. Don't I always? Now, give my regards to Dee Dee. Yeah, I will. So long, Victor. Uh, you'll hear from me when I get the information. All right, Ralph, I'll be waiting. Yeah, tomorrow sometime. Just sit tight. Yeah, yeah. Baby. Baby. Is he gone? Yeah, he's gone. <laughs> gone to meet you. I forgot to tell him. I'm tied up. Yeah, you're a smart kid, baby. Roping him in like that when he didn't want to be roped. I got a system, Victor. <laughs> Give me a kiss, baby. No. Come on. Please, Victor. Listen, what are you getting, Coy? It's all part of my system. You'll get your kiss when I'm ready. You're a smart kid. You're too smart for Ralph, huh? You said it, Victor. You're too smart for me. <laughs> I want something I want it. Now, come here. Victor. <laughs> but I like you, baby. I like you, too. Too bad you're married to Ralph, isn't it? Yeah, it's tough. After we make this touch, we'll... Get around to doing something about it. Okay. Okay. Well, gangbusters listeners, that's how this case progressed. An FBI informant was in on the plans of the liquor hijacking as the conspiracy got underway. But even the best laid traps are in danger of springing too soon or snaring the wrong game. And once again, here's tonight's narrator, the Honorable John C. Hilly, Assistant United States Attorney for the Southern District of New York. Well, as I was telling you, FBI agents of the New York field office had an informant planted a ring of liquor hijackers. And as information came to him, Special Agent Larry Service brought it to his supervisor, John Humphrey. John, Ralph just phoned. He said Victor took the bait. He'll go after the load on the ferry. Good. The buyer's supposed to be a nightclub owner. No information on the drop. I wonder if Ralph knows his wife has been seeing Victor. I doubt it. What do you think he'll do when he finds out? I'm just as worried about what he'll do if he doesn't find out. Whatever he tells Dee Dee's going to be relayed to Victor as fast as she can get there. Yeah. Yeah, I know, Larry. He said he hasn't told a soul about his connection with us, but there aren't many secrets between a man and his wife. Well, maybe we won't have anything to worry about. Such will come off tomorrow. Uh, John. Yeah. Ralph keeps warning me Victor might get rough with the drivers. Uh, we'll take care of that, Larry. You and I are going to be the drivers. Oh, that takes care of it all right, doesn't it? Yeah, takes care of it fine. 
That drive onto the ferry's awful narrow, John. You sure you can wheel this trailer through there? I'm going to try. I'll tell you that. Where'd you learn to push one of these things, anyway? Never even been in one until yesterday. Oh, great. You're doing okay. Take a look through that mirror, Larry. See how our friends are doing. They're still back there. The car and all for them. You got to hand it to Victor. He knows his business. Okay, try that rig on a boat. Go ahead, John. Yeah. Watch this side. Easy, easy. Easy there. Okay, go ahead. Not bad, huh? Not bad. I thought you were going to take a bulkhead with you. Oh, no, it wasn't that close. It was close enough. <laughs> oh, I'm telling you, I'm going to feel a lot safer in Victor's hands than I felt riding in this thing with you. Keep your fingers crossed anyway. If he wants to be, he'll be plenty tough. You're telling me. But if we're as meek as lambs, he won't bother with any rough stuff. John, you never saw a meeker lamb. Tail the truck, right? That's right. Oh, that's a tough assignment. Thank goodness that didn't happen to me. Come on, let's go out and get a smoke, huh? Yeah, I could use something. Go on. Victor's boys are getting out of their car. Yeah, looks like the moment. Did you know that they were crying for help in the Bureau of Census, the Department of Commerce? Is that so? Yeah, I just happened to have an application here in my pocket. Take out your pack. Give me a cigarette. Oh. Here comes Victor. Yeah. Have a cigarette? Thanks. Hello, boys. <laughs> nice day on the river, ain't it? Yeah. Smells better today. Now, listen to me. A truck of yours. I'm going to take it. What? Who are you kidding? I've got four boys standing around here. They all got guns, and they're all itching for target practice. Understand me? That's pretty plain. So I'm taking the truck. Oh, now, listen. Look, bud, I got nothing against you. All I want is that load. But if I have to kill you to get it, you're going to get killed. Now, you wouldn't want to die over a lousy load of scotch whiskey, would you? You've got a point. Okay. Walk on back past your rig. There's a sedan there right behind it. Go on, watch. Yeah. Keys in the truck? Yeah, they're in there. Okay. Keep watching. You're doing fine, boys. you got lots of sense. Okay. I'll in. Hey, look. Get in. Come on, Johnny. Don't get any place arguing. Yeah. I guess I won't. That's the attitude, boys. Now, here. There's some goggles for you. Put them on. Don't try to look out through them. It won't do you any good. The glass is painted over. So just sit there and relax. For relaxing, there's nothing like a ferry ride across the Hudson. <laughs> There. Hey, Dee, Dee, be careful with that coffee. It's hot. You're lucky I don't pour it over your head. What's the matter with you, anyway? I'd just like to know why you're sitting here at 11 o'clock in the morning drinking your third cup of coffee when right now the load is being delivered to the drop. Listen, baby. First of all, I worked at the time till 1 o'clock this morning, so I'm entitled to drink as much coffee as I want at 11. Second, I've done my part. Victor don't need me anymore. Besides, I don't know where the drop is. Pass the sugar. Brother, are you small potatoes? Here. I mean, I'm small potatoes. Don't throw things around like that. You're the key man in the operation, and you get a stinking 10%. Ain't 10% enough for you? You want to know the truth? No. Okay, do it out, then. 
What kind of a big dealer do you think you are? I don't need you, Mr. Small Potatoes. Oh, now, baby. I can go where the big money is. Why should I wait around for you to get up a little nerve? Dee You're through, And you don't know it. Huh? It's me and Victor. Victor? You heard that. Victor. It's been going on for months. You're kidding. Am I? We were just waiting for this touch to make it final. Yeah? Well, you'll see how final it is. You'll see where Victor winds up. He'll wind up three notches above you. Yeah, you can go visit him in Atlanta. You... Where? Ah, oh, come on, Dee Sit down and, and, and let's be like a man and wife should be. Where did you say I could visit Victor? Now, Dee Dee... Have I... you sung to the FBI on this deal? Oh, You have, you... haven't you? I should have known you would. Victor will kill you. Dee where are you going? Where do you think I'm going? I'm going to find Victor. Dee Next floor, boys. Just hang on to the railing and you'll be okay. Listen, I can't see anything. That's just the idea of the goggles. Hang on to the railing. Okay, you up front. That's the last step. Follow that railing around. Yeah. Railing. Okay, stop here. Inside. Inside where? Come on, come on. This way. Now sit down on the floor. Both of you. Yeah, but what... Sit down. Now, listen. I'm leaving one of my boys outside the door for ten minutes. I want you to keep those glasses on and stay still. You get me? Yeah, we get you. Now, you've been pretty good boys, both of you. So here's a little something for your trouble. Don't spend it all in one place. Remember, ten minutes. I'll see you. You okay, John? Yeah, Larry. You can take the glasses off. That ten minutes routine was just a bluff. Look, he handed us twenty dollars a piece. Generous guy, isn't he? Yeah. Where are we anyway? I'd say it's a condemned tenement house. Well, let's get going. Now we better wait a few minutes anyway, just in case. Then I want to call the office and see if they followed the truck to the drop. Okay. Special agent Dean. Hello, Dean. John Humphrey. Hello, John. Everything okay? Yeah, fine. Where's the drop? Where'd they take the truck? A small garage on Murray Street, number 653. Mac and James are keeping it under surveillance. I see. Uh, something's going wrong, though. What? Oh, Ralph phoned a few minutes ago. He said Dee Dee accidentally found out he was singing and she's on her way to Victor. Oh, no. That's what he said. Look, get hold of Mac and James. Tell them if she shows up at the drop to pick her up quietly and bring her in. Right, okay. Meantime, service and I will try to locate her elsewhere. We've got to grab her before she sees Victor. If we don't, we'll never make that buyer. Yeah, who is it? Victor home? No, he isn't. What do you want? Well, look, I got business with him. I'm buying some stuff off him. Some stuff that just come in today. Okay. He's down unloading the truck. Now, listen. Special agents of the FBI. I don't care what you are. You can't come busting in here. We're in. So you haven't seen Victor yet. What's it to you? It's plenty to us. You just come along, you'll find out. Get your hands off of me. Don't get stubborn. Come on, let's go. We're getting you out of here before Victor comes back and we have to carry you. You might just as well come along like a good little girl. Well, in the doorway. Hello, Mr. Service. Step in here. Look, I'm sorry I'm so late. I can't find Dee Dee any place. She must have gone to Victor. They must have skipped together. Don't worry about Dee Dee. We've got her. You have? We found her at Victor's place before she had a chance to talk to Victor. How do you like that, Mr. Service? Look what she does to me. After I give her the best years of my life. Yeah, it's rough. I could murder that Victor. But Dee Dee, I... I still love her. 
Ain't that strange? I could go I could go back to her and bend at me. Well, you've got a little something else to do for us first. Yeah? What, for instance? We'll know who the buyer is when he takes delivery. Then we can nail him. Yeah, that's what a guy gets for buying merchandise with heat on it. But we'll get Victor when he pays you off. Yeah. Uh, I, I was thinking, uh, is there any chance I could keep the money? After all, if... No, I guess not, huh? You guessed right, Ralph. That's our evidence against the buyer. But you just wait till the job's finished. Now, where do you think your payoff will be? I don't know. I've got no idea. Well, try to make it some public place, a bar, maybe. Some place where we can watch the transaction and step in as soon as the change is made. And now, gangbusters! Hello, Ralph. How are you? For crying out loud, Victor. How long do you want me to sit and wait for you? How are things going, Ralph? Come on, give me my end of the score. Let's get out of here. What's the matter? Dee Dee waiting for you someplace? What do you got Dee Dee so much in your mind for? Come on, pay off. Uh, look, Ralph. I could find a market for all the loads you line up. There ain't gonna be any more loads. I pushed my luck far enough. You and Dee Dee going on a vacation? I ain't seen Dee Dee in three days. You haven't? No, she ran out of me. Oh, no, that's too bad, Ralph. <laughs> How about here? This ought to cheer you up. Thanks. $2,875. It's all in that envelope. Yeah, it better be. Now I got a big piece of news for you, Ralph. Mm -hmm. I got a wire from Dee Dee. She's in Atlantic City waiting for me. Hey, how do you like that? Yeah. I got a big piece of news for you. You're going to get right, this. Hey, what's going on here? Special agents of the FBI. Yes, so hey, I'm watch you. He's got a gun. Sure, I got a gun. Give me that. Go on. Oh, I drop. Beautiful, John. Let me at him. I'll tear him apart. I'll break his back. Okay, Ralph, I'll take it easy. Stealing a like that. Stealing a man's wife. I'll tear him apart. He's had enough for now. Let him sleep this off. Yeah. Yeah, let him sleep this off. All right, you people, stand back. Come on, it's all over. There's nothing to see. Come on, now, there's nothing to see. Hey, Mr. Service, you know something? Uh, I, I kind of like this working for the government. <laughs> yeah, there must be something to this civil service business. Sure, Ralph, there's a lot to it. You don't make much money, but there's always plenty of laughs. That, gangbusters listeners, was how this hijacking syndicate was broken up. The leader, his accomplices, and the buyer of the stolen merchandise were all tried in federal court and received the maximum penalties. It was the hard work of agents of the Federal Bureau of Investigation in skillfully using an informant that wrapped this case together. Well, thank you, Assistant United States Attorney John C. Hilly, for this most amazing case history. And gangbusters, congratulations to all the FBI agents who participated in this difficult investigation. And now we take you back to gangbusters. Tonight marks the 14th anniversary of gangbusters in its crusade against crime. At this milestone, it is indeed a great pleasure to bring you a message from the Honorable James A. Pride, Chief of the Washington State Patrol. Hearty congratulations to Gangbusters on its 14th anniversary of splendid service. The long history of the program and the enthusiastic response of listeners everywhere are proof of success. May this anniversary be more than a recapitulation of past accomplishment. May it mark a milestone of success, which may continue for many years to come. The next message comes from the Honorable Carl G. Bachman, Mayor of the City of Wheeling, West Virginia. Congratulations to Gangbusters on its 14th anniversary. Gangbusters has done an outstanding job of helping the American people to understand more fully the work police officers and enforcement agencies are doing 
for their protection. And finally, the Honorable Homer Garrison, Jr., director of the Texas Department of Public Safety, has this to say. Hearty congratulations to Gangbusters for its 14 fruitful years of enlightenment and entertainment to the public and its aid to the cause of law enforcement and justice. No better justification for its continued existence can be offered than that it may persevere in advancing in the public's conscience the individual responsibility of each citizen in the perpetual war of law and order versus crime. Thank you, Director Garrison, Mayor Bachman, and Chief Pride for these fine tributes to gangbusters on its 14th anniversary. Your words will serve as a great challenge throughout the years to come. Tonight's case was dramatized by Stanley Niss and directed by George Zachary, with Carl Eastman and Chuck Webster in leading roles. Roger Foster speaking. Gangbusters is a Phillips H. Lord production.